It is a name with authority. James Augustus Faustino. Professor James Augustus Faustino. Those are the opening words of the novel. And we are introduced to a figure who is large enough in physical stature to inhabit that name. He is the much-loved chair of the English department at Devlin College in New York, and he is welcoming this day six new graduate teaching assistants and preparing for the routine orientation that each such batch of GAs receives. The session goes as expected, that is, until the kid, as he's called, Flynn Hawkins, asks what may seem like an impertinent question. I wonder if you could say a word or two about why you do this. Faustino looked at the young man. You mean this, he said, pointing at his notes. No, Hawkins said. Teaching English. Do you consider it, you know, a worthy vocation? Faustino tossed his folder onto the nearest desk. He really needed this kid to teach two sections of comp, and if Hawkins or anyone else quit before even embarking on this enterprise because he didn't think the profession was a worthy vocation, Faustino would be completely, well, you know. Just to be clear, he said, you're questioning what I do for a living. The young man swiped away a stray hair. Not questioning exactly, he said, and then shrugged, asking for guidance. I'm trying to figure myself out. One of the other GAs hacked out an aggressive cough, and Briggs appeared to scoff. He had once told Faustino his lifelong dream was to be an English teacher. Twenty-one months later, after missing the commencement ceremony at which these six graduate assistants received their diplomas, and realizing he would never see any of them again, Faustino would look out the front window of his house as Hawkins' beige, boxy, stuffed to the gills, 1984 Dodge Aspen pulled away from the curb outside his house, would remember the young man's first question to him, and try to recall his response. No doubt it was something about the value of showing young people their own humanity and the humanity of others through stories, of exploring the dark and ambiguous aspects of human nature in a world that avoids such exploration at all costs, of such work being of the highest calling. He may have quoted Northrop Fry. Whatever he said, it was apparently good enough, for he would remember the kid nodding and saying, Okay, sir, count me in. Words from the novel White Plains by David Hicks. And we get the sense there that Faustina's answer wasn't just a ploy to hold on to the kid to fill out the ranks of composition teachers. David Hicks starts his story with a question about stories, the worthiness of spending one's life in and among stories, teaching literature to young people who are trying to make sense of the world in all its complexity and pain and beauty. And the answer Professor James Augustus Faustino assumes he gave, as we heard, had to do with the value of showing young people their own humanity and the humanity of others through stories. So, as the kid, Hawkins, drives off in his 84 Dodge Aspen to plunge into the living of life, we're invited along on a journey filled with stories that may, it's hoped, reveal to us 
our own humanity and the humanity of others. As it happens, David Hicks is Dr. David Hicks, and he's taught literature at Pace University in New York, here at Marywood University in Scranton, and then out in Colorado where he was on the faculty of Mesa State and also Regis University. His novel, White Plains, was published in 2017 and was one of three finalists for the Colorado Book Award. In 2020, David Hicks was appointed as the director of the Maslow Family Graduate Program in Creative Writing at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre. The June residency of the Maslow Writing Program will open this weekend and continue through June 23rd and will feature the second annual Lit Fest hosted by the program with readings and more out on the Fenner Quadrangle on campus, open to the public, free of charge. In anticipation of the in-person residency about to begin, David Hicks paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk about the program he's been tapped to lead, and we had a chance to learn about the power of stories in his life. We had a a family tragedy when I was young. My sister died, and uh, the family just completely changed Uh, My mother's from southern Italy, very effusive personality. My dad's always kind of been the strong, silent type, but the whole household just kind of silenced. And I retreated to books. I found a great, great solace in books and used to walk uh, about a mile to my local library. There were no books in my house. My, My parents were high school grads. They didn't read much, but I really loved reading. And I just started as a little boy. I started reading, you know, Peanuts cartoons and any book I can get my hands on. In fact, when I went to the library, no one was really figuring out what I was taking out. So I was taking out romance, like salacious novels, (laughs) Jaws that scared the hell out of me, Stephen King novels. I would just, you know, grab books off the shelf and come home and read them. But that's, that's when it started. It really, it saved me. You know, books saved me. My librarians saved me. When we talk about literature in the world today, what's at stake and so forth, it's as important as anything. Yeah, you? telling, reading other people's stories, telling your own story, it's just about the most important thing you can do, right? I mean, this is what we were doing as humans a long time ago, right? Just to introduce ourselves, but also as entertainment, just to tell one another stories. There's a great moment in the in the Odyssey where Telemachus goes to Menelaus's citadel and They don't know who he is, but they say, you know, they bathe him, they feed him, and then they say, like, what's your story? And everybody gathers around, and that's the entertainment for the evening. Like, someone told their story, or the bard in the amphitheater, or something like that. So when people think this this kind of degree, a creative writing degree, is a sort of whimsical or vanity degree, it's so not. It's a really important thing to study and an important thing to do to learn how to tell your story well. And you didn't at first do that. You worked with other people to help them unpack those stories in books, right, as a teacher. But you didn't at first write stories or novels and such. No, I didn't. You're you're right. Uh, I I was, uh, I mean, there was no such thing as, in my family, you couldn't say, I'm going to be an artist or I'm going to be a writer. I I started working when I was like 11, 12, 13. Uh, You had to work. And I was fortunate enough to do well in school and get to grad school. And I, I, was going to study music, but I ended up in a very difficult music theory class that was part two of a class. I thought it was part one, and I was lost in the class, so I dropped the music major inadvertently because I didn't know it was part two, and I thought I didn't really know what I was talking about, but I switched to English because I would always love reading, 
And then I became, I, I got my master's, got my PhD, and I became an English professor, which is kind of the different side of my brain than creative writing, right? You know, it's an analytical writing and, and thinking. So I taught literature for a long time and loved it. But after a while, after, I think in my early 40s, I just I just wanted to write my own work. Like I I'd, I'd wanted to stop talking so much about other people's works and, and write my own. So I switched. I switched over. It, it was a long transition, but thankfully the university where I was valued that as much as academic work. I, and I took classes, you know, because it's, it's a whole different field, right? It's a whole different way of thinking to write creatively. You can't just jump into it, although I tried. And then uh, learned how to write stories and just practiced, you know, practiced a lot, published some short stories. And so I didn't publish my first book until my late 50s. I'm 61 now. I was 57 when the book was published. What difference did the publishing make if you had had the manuscript Hmm. without going the extra step? Does that somehow seal something? What does that do when you actually have someone say, yes, we're going to put it out there? Yeah. Uh, I'd like to say it doesn't do much, but it does do a lot because I take great pleasure in writing and in the writing process. I, I love revision. I can spend, nothing I've published have been, has been revised fewer than 50 times. I could just really have at it. I'm not a good first drafter. But the first time, so I was sending stories out. This is when I was in my 40s. I was sending short stories out and I had one accepted. It was one of my favorite magazines called Glimmer Train. It's now defunct, but it was a short story magazine. And the editor called me and told me that they were going to publish it. And I I didn't expect it. And I just uh, sat in my car and had a little whoop-de-doo and uh, tears, a little bit of tears. And it 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 told me that, uh, yeah, I, I kind of knew what I was doing and I, could keep, I should keep going. And same thing on a bigger scale when the book was published, uh, just validating. But more than that, kind of, like I, I play music and it's sort of like you, you have fun jamming and you have fun doing rehearsals. But then when you do a gig and it goes well, that feels like, ah, oh, all the work was worth it. So it's something like that. Making it public uh, feels more than just validating. It feels like, uh, okay, now the book has a home. It's out there now. I need to promote it, but it's now in, in the public's hands and people can read it. And that there's something about that that's very gratifying. Was it important to you to have had as much time as you did solely teaching others literature Mm. so that when you came to create your own stories and then shape programs in which you were going to help other people tell their stories, would you say, I wish it were only five years that I did it and get on to this other part? Yeah, I wish I had had the, I I so admire, so we have students in in the program at Wilkes, we have students from 22 to 80. And some of the 22-year-olds, I thought, boy, I I think, boy, I just wish I had your confidence, you know, your self-esteem or your support from family or whatever it is that gives you the the audacity to think that you could publish this book at 23 or 24. And they do, you know, they, they have that. And it's it's wonderful. I didn't have it. I I, I had uh, terrible self esteem. But also, I think I wasn't I wasn't really ready. I, uh, I can't really regret that. I think I needed to go through all that I went through to be the writer I am. I don't think it would have been the same at all. In fact, I look at stuff I wrote in my twenties and it was awful. <laughs> but teaching literature, I'm not sure it. I'm not sure it helps. It it certainly helps on some level dissecting literature and picking it apart and especially the craft of it. But because I was doing so intellectually and analytically, 
I'm not sure it was helping my creative side because usually when professors create, whatever field it is, they sometimes do so with an agenda or, or some kind of too, too much analysis. They get too prescriptive or too analytical in their writing, and they don't just let the story speak for itself. So I, I've had to learn to kind of cut out like symbolism and stuff like that, just get it pared down to the essential of the story and not put too much of that analytical brain into it to, to keep it simple, as the writers I admire do. So yeah, I'm not sure. It's a great question, and I, I don't really know the answer. I, I imagine it's helped, but some, in some ways it's been a hindrance. And sometimes editing or critiquing other people's work, if it's not that good, may not be helping me at my writing. I'm not sure. Uh, similarly, reading brilliant works is helpful, but also kind of deflates me. You know, like I read a Toni Morrison novel and I think, oh, I'm never going to be able to do that. It's complicated, but it's it's something I'm kind of wrestling with. But ultimately, I just have to let go and write, right? <laughs> you came to Wilkes with a program that has been established, and we know from the number of writers who have been in a chair like that talking about the program, yeah. that to a person, they're all just thrilled with the balance and the ability, the writing community that is there, yeah. and the faculty members. And has that given you a chance to come in with a foundation? And then what do you do? Do you riff on that? Oh, yeah. Is that how you might explain it? Yeah, uh, that's very well explained. I know Nancy McKinley was here recently, and uh, you've had many of our faculty here. Thank you. It is a world-class program. I mean, its uh, I don't know too many people know about it because uh, it's a, a small university, Wilkes, and it's in Wilkes-Barre. But a couple of ranking agencies have ranked us in the top three in the country behind Harvard. So that's pretty good. And we have a world-class publisher, Etruscan Press, that no one really knows about, but it's at Wilkes. It's housed at Wilkes, and it's ranked among the top four independent presses in the country last year by AWP, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. So it's a really good program. So there's... and. Bonnie Culver and Mike Lennon co-founded it. It was one of the first low residency programs, meaning that you come to campus twice a year in January and June for a week for workshops, craft lessons, readings, and but the rest of the time you stay home and you work from home on your computer, emailing your or communicating with your faculty mentor one-on-one. So it was one of the first of its kind in, back in 2005. And so my job was in part to just you know, go with it, <laughs> but also to diversify the faculty, to change some of the reading lists, or at least, uh, you know, make them more representative, and to try to boost enrollment a little bit, which had kind of lagged. And that's happened. We've doubled our enrollment in the last year from 40 to 80, and uh, the faculty is, is more representative these days. And so it's been, I don't want to say revived, because it was doing great. It's maybe enhanced a little bit or tweaked, but it's still the excellent program that I inherited. And I had come from, uh, I started a small program in Denver, and it's a, a lovely program, Mile High MFA. It had about as many students at Wilkes, but it didn't have the reputation and the history. So I find that at, at Wilkes, as director, I'm getting uh, a lot more better quality applicants, I'll say. And that's gratifying. It's really fun. One of the things that you happened on when you came was this COVID pandemic problem. <laughs> and you have said that the students are at home generally in between the residencies right. writing online. But the beauty of this program is when you all come together. Yeah. Uh, so that was a problem because we had to go online. Uh, in fact, my first, I was hired two years ago and that was 2020. So Bonnie invited me. That was her last residency. 
I kind of shadowed her, but it was a scramble because we didn't really know how to use Zoom then, right? I mean, this is all new. And so they pulled it off wonderfully, but it's different when it's all online. We had to do it again in January because COVID cases spiked. On the other hand, we know how to use Zoom and we know how to deliver the lessons. And many people, you know, are from different parts of the country, California, Arizona. So they didn't really need to get on a plane or so they could continue to work from home. So it worked. It just, to be honest, it wasn't as magical. And I think the students who came last year at the residency really felt it like that they had they had not seen each other for a year or they had just we were just meeting each other and it really was a love fest i mean they were just so happy to see each other there were hugs all around the faculty were just thrilled to be back in person i think we'll get the same feeling next week because we were online in january when we just we just miss each other like you make lifelong friendships where else are you going to find you know, 60 or 80 people who think just the way you think, you know, in the the same place at the same time, supporting each other. It's just great energy. So yes, it's, it was difficult during the pandemic. And I'm not sure we could use the past tense, right? So it's still kind of going on, but it's, it's much better to be in person. This time round and last year, you have instituted something called Lit Fest and you want yeah. us to really come. I mean, you always <laughs> have invited us, yeah. but you really want us to come. Yeah, we're, we're putting on, let's see, six nights of readings. They're all at 7 p.m. They're all outside under a tent. They all start at 7 p.m. sharp and they're, they're all going to be about an hour long. These aren't going to be like three hour readings. Uh, these are going to be one hour. A couple of them are going to be 90 minutes. We're going to have food trucks, ice cream, beer, you know, make a real festival out of it. So there's a big tent. In fact, it just went up today on campus. So a big white tent in the middle of campus. It'll be about 100 people at each event. And we'd love, and they're free, open to the public. We have interviews, readings every every night. There are two featured events on Juneteenth. June 19th, there's a celebration of black authors, again with food trucks and beer. And then Thursday, June 23rd, we have some visiting writers. We have four top-notch writers uh, Maroi Ejide, who's an alum of our program, whose second novel has been reviewed by New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post. Margaret Talbot of The New Yorker, New Yorker writer. Uh, Ruth Freeman, a Sri Lankan American writer who's got two books coming out. And Tim Siebels, who is a National Book Award nominee for poetry and maybe the best poetry reader I've ever seen. He's reading on Thursday. So it should be a lot of fun. In between are faculty readings that'll be just wonderful. They're brilliant faculty, they're brilliant writers. And it, starts, it all starts Saturday, June 18th at 7 p.m. with an interview with two of our writers who have just published books. Ken Liu is a science fiction writer and Nisha Sharma, who is a romance writer. And their books have just come out and they're going to talk about from conception to delivery, how their books took shape. That should be fun. And the other thing that your writers have said when they've come to talk with us is not only do they celebrate the writing community and the quality of the faculty, but the how-to part that is very much an aspect of this program, that, it, right. that you don't just leave them with a manuscript. No, right. You are going to learn how to be a writer. <laughs> and, and you're going to, in, in three semesters, uh, you will have a book manuscript. Um, and you'll, you'll have that manuscript critiqued by a New York City agent or editor. And if you go on to the MFA for two more semesters, you'll have a required internship with a publisher or a literary organization like Scranton Fringe or a local organization or a national organization or a university. So you will have your work critiqued by an editor, an agent, 
you will have an internship, you'll get classes on how to be a professional writer or how to be in the writing field, right? One way or another, you're going to get that kind of training. And that is really unusual for a writing program. You, you get the craft of writing taught to you by other programs. Ours is very unusually focused on community and career. Community in that the faculty really do adore their students and they really do help them, not just during but beyond the program. And career in that, you know, you have to, you have to get a book critique. It's a requirement to meet with an agent or editor to talk about your work. And it's a requirement to intern somewhere. And, and it's a requirement to have us talk to them about the life of a writer, like what's involved. How, do you, how can you make money as a writer? How can, how can you get a job in writing field? And that's, that's unusual. Also, the classes that happen during the residencies, do you go to a Wilkes University classroom or some of them out on the quad? Or uh-huh. how does that part of the program work? Yeah, the students, especially the adult students, especially in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, love being back on a campus. So we have classes on, uh, in the classrooms, and they just get so excited. And I, I get it. It's fun to be on a college campus. And the Wilkes campus is so beautiful. So it's a lot of fun to be there. And everything's you know within a short walk. Uh, all the buildings are close together, and they're beautiful. Our faculty can also have classes outside, especially if they're worried about COVID or if they don't want everybody to mask. They'll just sit outside if the weather is, is nice. So yeah, and sometimes we'll have just one-on-ones or small workshops and those could be anywhere. You know, you can go out to lunch or you can go get coffee. or So it's that, it's that kind of, they're very different. There are some lectures or some craft lessons that will have, you know, about 80 people. And that'll be in a lecture hall. But then there'll be workshops with two or three students. So, yeah, it's really nice. And one other thing that I think might surprise people is that maybe when we think of creative writing programs, we think of novels or short stories or, mm-hmm. or poetry. But you have a wide range of genres. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that uh, because it's uh, it also is very unusual to have, we have an unusual number of published and produced graduates, but in all fields, like uh, not just novels, but novels, memoirs, screenplays that have been produced into films, plays that have been produced in New York, poetry, books that have been published. So I think I hit them all. We And we now have spoken word. So we have a spoken word instructor. So students can take a spoken word class just to learn how to deliver their poetry audibly. <laughs> or if someone who's taking fiction wants to just sort of exercise those muscles to do that. And we have a graphic novelist come to speak. We have someone who does audio drama, YA. You can kind of do anything you want to do. We'll find you a mentor and you can write in that genre and then we'll try to help you to get published in that genre. It's also in a in a world where these kinds of programs are getting cut, it's also nice to have a, a university that supports it. And a, a, I should mention the endowment from the Maslow family. The Maslow family has given this program a healthy endowment that sustained us for the dry years and uh, is really wonderful to have because that's, that's how we can afford to bring in some visiting writers and to go to conferences and things like that. So it is, it is a really cool program. We have on our shelf there more books on Norman Mailer than <laughs> anybody yeah. in Wyoming Valley. Tell us of our dear longtime friend, Mike Lennon. Is he he's a, a guardian? He is. He's, and he's, uh, he's a kick-ass mentor. Like He's just maybe the best mentor I've ever known or met, and he's a brilliant writer. I, I knew Mike Lennon's writing before I knew Mike Lennon, and he's just a beautiful writer. And a beautiful human being. He was the academic vice president at Wilkes. He's been a part of Wilkes forever. 
and he remains uh, one of our most popular mentors and a steadfast advisor to me. I've relied on him all, all the time. So, and I know he's a big fan of your program, so it's nice of you to bring him up. David Hicks, director of the Maslow Family Graduate Program of Creative Writing at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre, speaking just there about J. Michael Lennon, co-founder with Bonnie Culver of that distinguished writing program. The June residency is about to begin and will feature a week-long celebration of writers and writing. That's the second annual Lit Fest, and it will run from June 18th to the 23rd. Readings on Sunday, June 19th, are a celebration of contemporary black writers affiliated with the Wilkes program, Saturday Journey of the Book, and that's an interview with young adult romance writer Nisha Sharma and sci-fi novelist Ken Liu on the publication of their new books, followed by short readings and book signings. Oh, and David Hicks and J. Michael Lennon will read on the same program on Monday evening at 7, that's June 20th, and they'll be joined by Taylor Polides and Nancy McKinley, whom you heard recently last week on Art Scene. The information that you need is available online at wilkes.edu slash cw. All the events at LitFest are open to the public free of charge. They'll be held under a tent on the university's Fenner Quadrangle and there is a rain location in the Henry Student Center on West South Street. Food trucks, as we heard, will be on site, and you can take along a chair or a blanket and just enjoy the evening's celebration of the written word. That's LitFest, the second annual, presented by the Maslow Family Graduate Program in Creative Writing at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre, Saturday, June 18th to Thursday, the 23rd. And for more information on the web, wilkes.edu slash cw.